1: for podcast The Danger Room Files, where we take a look at different X titles throughout the years. Today, we'll be covering the new mutants. I'm
0: your host, Jonah. I'm Nico.
2: And I'm Dylan, and I hope you survive the experience.
1: Now, if you're listening to the 80s mutant mania, you probably know we're covering the new mutants currently, so it's very exciting that we get to talk about a team that I get to have a little bit of insight on. Granted, I know nothing past what we've already covered. (laughs) I'm excited to get to talk about the students of the X-verse and the X-team, because you know at the current time of recording this, I am technically still a student. Not technically, I am a student. Don't know why I said it like that. The New Mutants got their start in the Claremont years, starting in March 1983 to August 1987, which saw the title New Mutants run from issues one to 54, which included the roster of Cannonball, Karma, Mirage, or as she's currently called in 80s Mutant Mania, Psych, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, Magma, Cipher, Warlock, and Magic. This is the start of, you know, X teens and we, talk, all three of us, often sometimes remark on 80s Mutant mania that this feels that the title started to feel starts to feel a little bit like the x-men light so to speak where it's just the exact same stories and situations just with teenagers out of these issues does that still continue from where we're reading or is there a certain shift when new characters like magma cypher and warlock are introduced
0: i mean it's that second year it's like out of nowhere issues like 12 to 24 that roster doubles
2: yeah the team gets bigger and i feel like once we get to those issues, we will stop calling it X-Men Light. Just feel like another X-Men book because the new mutants kind of start having their own villains or some X-Men villains that have maybe showed up once or twice become more predominant as new mutant villains and they just really come into their own.
0: It's a great era too, this initial era, because one of the things that I have often found is like, stories take so long to hit that perfect moment, you know? There's that first 66 X-Men and then there's like roughly 40 issues you can claim fill in the interim. But it's not until the Claremont era that everything feels right, and it's not until Kitty that everything feels really right, and it's not until Rogue that everything feels amazing, and I can go on forever but this first like trade really that new mutants renewal epic collection that has one to 12 and the graphic novel that really does represent like that 66 issues of x-men that i wouldn't want to have to read because then Things get rolling right away with 13. 13 starts us off on the Secret Wars stuff, and then all of a sudden the Hellions are a big deal. And before you know it, it's the Sienkiewicz years, and those are glorious and gorgeous, and then the ramp up to 50. So, like, it really does start to pick up, but this first year has this, like, glorious magic that gets all of the slow startup out of the way real quick.
2: Especially with the addition of Magma and Cypher and Warlock and Magic. I feel like there's first 12 issues, it was helping us learn about the original New Mutants team, but they were very much very light, and I feel like the additions helped those original members' story and characterizations grow because they had more people to interact with than just the core five of them.
0: And, like, it's not even that core five for very long because it's, like, issues six to twelve where Magma jumps in, and before you know it, it becomes this wild interplaying ride where I feel like everything interacts with the New mutants at one point. Dazzler shows up and the Guthrie kids pop in. Power Pack shows up. There's a time travel adventure. There's a lot of things that are very new mutanty, and they're really cool and I promise that weird cloak and dagger stuff really does come back up and Legion becomes one of their main villains. This is his introduction. My precious Legion, my David, my David makes me want to holler who I love so much. <laughs> this is an incredible incredible era that beginning is a little slow that middle is perfect although i'll be honest by the time claremont leaves i'm ready to say goodbye i
1: think it's like 54 yeah by the time he goes it's time as claremont leaves we then enter the wheezy years from september 1988 to january 1990 which all the title of new mutants run from issue 55 to 85 which all the roster of cannonball mirage wolf spain sunspot warlock magic boom boom richter rusty skids and birdbrain now these issues Clearly have new characters. Can you tell me a little bit how the introduction of these new members to the team changed the dynamic, or did it stay the same? What exactly happened? I also noticed these mutant names are a little—no offense to them—jokey. <laughs> So when Weezy Simonson took over, it was originally six issues
0: so that Claremont could get way ahead on writing Excalibur. That was all it was supposed to be. Claremont was going to come back at issue 60. That is not how it went. She stayed on the title till issue 98 with interim fill-ins here and there. This is a significant era of time. The biggest problem I have is genuinely Burt Levin's art. I feel like Danny Moonstar often looks like if Cher were a horse on BoJack Horse's. And I don't care for it. I think he tends to make young women look like goblins. However, the worst offender of everything in this era is far and away fallen fucking angels. This is the era that gave us fallen angels. It is, I mean, really, it's got Madrox and it's got Boom Boom and it's got Siren and it's got some of my favorite fucking characters and it is mercilessly. Oh, it's got Warlock and Sunspot and it is mercilessly one of the worst books I've ever read,
2: ever. It was a mini story that kind of it introduced a lot of great characters but they were only great years after we had forgotten about Fallen Angels. And I completely agree, the art during this era I, literally, like you said, every issue or cover that had Danny it was Cher. But it was share with a really weird face. I feel like the artists were trying to differentiate, like, teenagers from adults and they just made teenagers look like little trolls and I I don't really have anything to add besides that.
0: This era also saw the assassination of a new mutant and I don't want to get into the specifics because you know we're not too far from that and I look forward to you getting to be surprised by it but this era came under a lot of fire. There was a specific new mutant who they received more hate mail about this character than all of the other characters total mail combined and And so they killed the character and then received a record amount of hate mail. (laughs) So, and that character's death is all the book is about for a year.
2: Yeah, I feel like that's all it was after that character died. The writers should have realized that people wouldn't have hated that character if you would have wrote that character better. I think it was just... Very telling that that's what happened and what the writers felt like they had to do. It was very telling of what they were doing wrong.
0: And then what's really weird is this sort of play out years. Okay, I'm going to say something to you, Jonah, and I mean it with all my heart. The book that New Mutants most interacts with that isn't X-Men is Thor.
1: I was prepared for either something completely out of left field or not Thor. Not Thor. (laughs) Wheezy
0: Simonson, at this time and to this day, is married to one of the most brilliant artists in the history of Thor, a guy named Walt Simonson, who also is an incredible writer and created Frog Thor, among a million other brilliant ideas, and I genuinely love his tenure on the character. And IDW put out one of their gorgeous oversized artist editions of seven random issues of his. He's also the creator of Beta Ray Bill, who you know is one of my top things in history. Yes. So they spend a lot of time interacting with Thor. Some of the characters actually gain Asgardian powers for like decades. And there's a lot of interplay with Asgard and they actually spend like a full year in Asgard. Like the title just fucking moves to Asgard and they start a small side title in our world. And that is the mistake that led to Rob Liefeld (laughs) taking over the X-Men
1: speaking of Leifeld, we get to talk about his years next from which i'm assuming nico's reactions were not good the lifeld year saw the new mutants from february of 1990 to january of 1991 which saw the title of new mutants 86 to 100 which leads into x-force which we've already talked about this roster saw cable shatterstar cannonball wolf spain sunspot warlock and warpath so i guess my question is where did everything go wrong <laughs> You know, it's not a matter of where did things go
0: wrong. It's a matter of where was the breakdown in communication, okay? So, one of the things that John Byrne once said was why he could not continue to work with Chris Claremont was that Claremont had a penchant for changing pages after the fact. That is limitlessly what the artists at this time were given the rights to do without the writer's consent. So, sometimes the artist and writer would agree to a plot, the writer would script it, and find out the artist artist has already started drawing it with tons of changes now the writer would have to script to those pages that do not reflect the plot and then the artist would change that dialogue and that is why wheezy quit that's why claremont quit and that's ultimately why these artists were so unhappy with the way they were treated at marvel that they struck out on their own a lot of them have said the way they handled creating image was a little not they weren't wrong to do it they just weren't wrong to do it, it was time to put comics in the hands of the creators period full stop End a fucking story. And it's still time for it. So there is nothing wrong with these brilliant minds striking out on their own. The way they did it was a little surreptitious and not necessarily the nicest. They all got like these huge number ones and big pay raises and negotiated massive titles for themselves so they'd have a whole lot of capital when they left. And then left all of these books like three and four issues in. So really not a nice guy move. But the problem was that Liefeld was not homogeneously working with Wheezy. She was writing it. He was drawing it. He was getting plot per mission, and he was pushing for a lot of what I'm going to call open-minded, angry white man ideas from the early 90s. This willingness to accept Eastern culture and genuinely diversity. I'm going to go on about a lot of things I don't like about Rob Liefeld over the next couple of years, but I want to (laughs) start with Rob Liefeld loves diversity. He genuinely loves intersectionality, and the fact that he's super anti-gay Richter and Shatterstar, like, super anti-gay Richter and Shatterstar is actually weirdly out of character for him don't get me wrong he's a dude bro and like he's got this famous quote he one time spent like 257 thousand dollars on arnold schwarzenegger's sword from conan just so that he could say he's the guy that spent that much money on the conan sword the guy had a levi's ad in 1991 he was the best paid comic artist of all time at one point he had the best-selling book of all time at one point rob liefeld really represented the apex of the result of the cross-section of the British invasion and Frank Miller. And say the fuck you want, there were missteps. They referred to Moira McTaggart as a Scotch woman at one point, which, so deeply offensive, Scots is a way you can describe the origin of a person's nationality. Scotch is the way you can describe the drink you would like neat or on the rocks. And they got called out in it, and to their credit, they posted an apology in the letters page. Again, like we said in the X-Force episode, I think these years are actually really not attractive. I don't find the art very appealing. But say what you will, Rob Liefeld actually knows how to tell a story. Like, actually not a bad storyteller. Genuinely, the man's talented. Just not at feet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, to add to what you said, he does know how to tell a story. He can make some pretty amazing art to a point. That point not being feet. I do feel like he towards the end of New Mutants and beginning of X-Force that he created one of my favorite characters, Shatterstar, even though he didn't care for what happened to Shatterstar decades later with his coming out. He did create Shatterstar, so I am very appreciative of that, and he created Feral, and he brought Warpath out of comic book limbo to join the New Mutants and go into X-Force. So that's all the goodness that I can say about Liefeld's tenure on New Mutants going into X-Force.
1: And this was way before he started photo tracing uncomfortable photos that look like tiny lady porn. I guess my final statement on the Liefeld years is don't show feet. Don't show feet! Next, this led us to the years of Generation X, which started with the Lobdell Bacolo years of November 1994 to October 1997. I was born, which saw the title Generation X from 1 to 31. Now, you could correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know if these two characters were introduced, but this was the title that introduced X is for Podcast fan favorite character, Monet, as well as Jono Chamber. These characters
0: originally appeared in the lead up to this series, but yeah, this was a really cool time. I'm a humongous fan of. Chris Baccalo or Bacalo. I've been pronounced both ways by people in the industry, so I don't judge anybody's pronunciation of it until Chris tells me otherwise. Friend of the podcast, Chris B. So, friend of the pod, Chris B, is one of the greatest narrative storytellers in the history of the medium. I think he is up there with Frank Miller. I think he is up there with Will Eisner. Like, I really believe in him. And I will be honest, sometimes what he draws to achieve that beautiful page construction is ugly as fuck. He loves embracing the ugly in something to find the beautiful in it. He designed one of the most grotesque characters ever, a giant tumor with legs and arms and a face called The Sugar Man. And the sugar man is somehow one of my favorite villains of all time because the personality that friend of the pod chris b which is now going to be his name forever so i never have to pronounce his last name he's one of the greatest dynamic storytellers i've ever seen and the fact that he actually is only on of this era which represents something like the first 31 issues plus a bunch of specials and whatnot of the first let's call it 40 entries in the gen x universe he's only on like 17 of them and this is the heyday years. Imagine if John Byrne skipped half of Proteus, half of Dark Phoenix Saga, one issue of Days of Future Past. It was just really disappointing because these two minds coming together at one of the peaks of their creativity because I actually think Chris Boccolo's multiple appearances in The X-Verse are all beautiful. He was one of the only good things about Victor Gishler's X-Men. I truly believe this, if it hadn't been such an unkind time to comics and general this could have been truly one of the great runs of all time i mean like stan lee jack kirby fantastic four it could have been great
2: these issues of generation x like he said generation x number one almost every page in that issue i could hang up on my wall the art that chris did for that first issue, you could see how much love for this new generation of X characters was put into each one of them because almost every page seemed like a splash page. This era, Generation X was the start of Emma, everyone's favorite, especially me and Jonah's favorite, being with the X-Men. This came off the heels of the X-Men storyline, The Phalanx Covenant, and now Emma is working for Xavier and helping guide and lead the next generation of X-Men. It's just one of my favorite eras of comics.
0: Following what I call the Fitzroy Massacre. That's what I call it to not have to describe it so that people can be surprised when they read 282. But the Fitzroy Massacre is one of the actual, like, best moments in this era. And I believe Lobdell wrote it.
2: I think, yeah, you're right. He I'm almost positive he did. The roster of this era is, like I just mentioned, Emma, along with Banshee. They are the mentors to the next generation of mutants, which are Monet, Husk, Jubilee, Chamber, Skin, Sink, sometimes Mondo, and... <laughs>
0: <laughs> and even when he's there, sometimes he's penance. just the floor. <laughs>
2: Exactly, and then sometimes penance as well. And it also brought back occasionally a fan favorite from the X Men Outback era, Gateway, which I'm sure a lot of fans were pretty happy to see him. Show and
1: Ardyn Leach.
2: Yes, the green and pink frogs show up too.
1: Moving on, we have the Hama years from November 1997 to January 1999. This saw the title Generation X from issues 32 to 47. What did the change in writers mean for the change in story? Was there a shift in overall narrative? Were there new characters introduced that either hindered or helped the story? What happened? Following Lobdell and friend of the pod Chris B announcing their
0: departure, which was so unceremonious, they just sort of petered out. Like they just kind of got limb. It just sort of stopped being a book, and they announce bringing in brand new artist, major new era, genius new- like they really fucking whole page ads for James Robinson's run. And he leaves after like three issues. And they get Larry Hama, who at the time had- you know, Larry Hama writes war comics. Larry Hammer writes G.I. Joe. Larry Hammer writes Wolverine. He is such a fucking man's man. Larry Hama's dick is so fat, he doesn't wear a he wears a garbage bag and he's such a man's man that when you like read this book you can see a brilliant mind trying to write a story that was never meant to be written by him he was essentially tasked with fixing all of the monet stuff and he just sort of did the best he could not really being the guy to write this this that is the that was not the
2: best that that was not the best that anyone could do. They ruined Monet when they switched writers. I,
0: I'll be honest, for my sake. When I think about Hama stories that like break me, I think about Albert and Elsie from Wolverine, which is one of my favorite stories. But when I think about his Generation X, I think about a guy who very clearly would have rather been writing much more adult characters. He saw this as his chance to do kind of like a Claremont Sinkevich era, and it just didn't come together. It's hollow. It's really hollow. Funny choice words (laughs)
2: yeah it is uh my my main thing that i was going to go off on was what i already just mentioned i the change in writers like jonah mentioned at the start of this if it changed anything in the story and it's very confusing but my favorite character from this era monet her entire history was changed in a way that made absolutely no sense
0: A core element of Monet's character, essentially her identity, was uprooted. They told us that we never truly understood who Monet was, ever, in some slightly problematic ways.
2: Not just Monet, the other character that would slightly show up from time to time, Penance, her character was completely changed too. And after this storyline, like, Nico... Jokingly said, both Monet and Penance became very hollow characters and we kind of didn't really know who either one of them were when this era ended. And that's very unfortunate because we had just spent 30 issues learning and loving these characters just for this arc to completely change both of them. Or, in a weird sense, all four of them.
0: And I think this run has some positives. It's a really great exploration of my favorite member of Generation X, Chamber. It's great use of Husk. And it's strong use of Jubilee. Unfortunately, Sync, Monet, Banshee, Emma they do not fare so well.
2: Also Skin, I think in this era most of the writers forgot that Skin even existed on the team. I actually
1: forgot Skin existed on the team till you just said it. <laughs> Moving on from the Hama years, we have the Farber years from February 1999 to April of 2000, which are the title generation X issues 48 to 62. What can you tell me about this run? Nothing.
2: In this era, the only thing that I can say that happened that I vaguely even remember was the fact that we tried to get some characterization for Monet, who literally just got destroyed in the last arc. And honestly, the characterization that they were then providing Monet, from the weird twist that happened in the last era of us learning that Monet is not the person that we had been reading, this era they basically wrote Monet as if what happened in the last era didn't even happen. And that she was still the same person that we knew, but her history proves otherwise. That's really confusing. And yeah, like Nico said, nothing happened. And I have to wonder
0: if they're looking just to stretch for time, almost. Like, this is not an era that, during X-Force, we described as just sort of the X-Men treading water, and this is that same John Francis Moore years, where no book really had a solid identity and everything was sort of recovering from endless crossover syndrome. Whether it was two crossovers, three crossovers, ten books, or two books, everything seemed to rely on something else to tell its narrative, and I frequently remember the type over with a few other things, and it just never felt natural.
2: There is one thing that was added. It was a team member. Her name is Gaia, and I actually really love her. She's, of course, a C lister character.
0: Dude, I love her too. But in all fairness, she's like a Q lister.
2: She's a Q lister, but she basically has almost like Scarlet Witch level power. And I don't understand why a character like that, she basically only showed up in this era of comics. And then she was thrown to comic book limbo to never be seen again.
0: I think people fear OP. You know what I mean? Like anytime somebody's too overpowered, how do you write them? Who can they possibly go up against? It changes the book. It changes the characterization. And I think that's the risk you run with having a character that powerful one of the things is they have to keep the scarlet witch on the avengers because she can't ever fuck around with the new mutants you know i mean like scarlet witch is a teacher would oh okay well the kids are always safe hey why isn't scarlet witch a teacher the kids would always be safe true except when she kills them
2: well i mean i wouldn't trust scarlet witch with mutant children but that's just me (laughs)
1: moving on to the ellis slash wood years which took place in may 2000 to june 2001 which saw generation x 63 to 75 this is coming to the end of generation x so what did that near end mean to you guys these were not good years which is weird because there's a lot of good
0: creators but these are bad years bad bad book bad gen x stand in the corner go be cancelled
2: I completely agree. <laughs> Very much just like this time for X-Force books. This was not a good time. I feel like the amazing Ellison Wood, like Nico mentioned, they have done amazing books and eras and other X-Books that were amazing. This was not good. I feel like you could have almost given different code names to the roster that this book had, and it could have just been a brand new team. I feel like they knew nothing about this roster. To mention, this roster was was incredibly smaller than previous years. This roster was only Banshee. Emma was not in this era of Generation X books, and the team consisted of Jubilee, Husk, Monet, Chamber, and Skin.
0: It was certainly unceremoniously disjointed from the rest. Don't get me wrong, I described the Farber years as nothing, but this was certainly a dramatic turn away from nothing toward what-the-fuckery.
2: That's all I have to say about that.
1: With Gen X's end brings the New Mutants version 2, which started with the Nunzio slash Christina years in July 2003 to December 2005, which are the title New Mutants 1 to 13 and New X-Men 1 to 20.
0: Get out of my way. I love this. I want to talk about it forever. I never want to stop talking about it. Give me this. Okay.
1: (coughs) So this is clearly a reboot and a retelling of the title. What did that mean? Were you excited? Did it lead up to expectations?
0: Danny went around the country pulling together young diverse mutants to be on a new team team in Grant Morrison's New X-Men's school. She reunited all of her old students, and it was basically like an 80s movie. I loved everything, except that part where Wolfsbane bangs a teenager while a teacher (laughs) riding a motorcycle. That's maybe not great. Wolfsbane banging that little kid was kind of weird, but other than that, I fucking love this era. I love the New X-Men Academy X House of X tie-ins. I love the yearbook special closeout. I love the X Men Unlimited story that was recently collected in the new X Men Companion. This is a great era. It's a little bit silly. It's a little bit the first three seasons of 90210, but I love it. So many cool teams. It came up with like all of the X Men having their own squad of six X students with a name similar to what they do. And like everyone's a teacher. And then Rogue Squad gets their own book called X Men Legacy and it's led by Rogue. And it's so good, I could just gouge someone's eyes out so it's the last thing they see. And I just Just really liked this era.
2: I'm gonna sound like a broken record repeating Nico, but this was an amazing era. Like Nico said, Danny gathering a bunch of students and then all the other new mutants being like headmasters, along with a few X-Men being headmasters with certain teams. Like you mentioned, rosters like Cyclops had a team called Corsairs, Emma had a team called the New Hellions, was amazing.
0: New Hellions were so amazing. There
2: were so many new characters introduced at this time and in like true New Mutant fashion, there were so many diverse characters. Uh, at this time characters like Dust and Rockslide, Annalie and Bling, both being LGBT characters and Indian characters like Indra. It was just an amazing time. I will say I was a little bit disturbed by the whole Wolfsbane sleeping with Elixir, but I kind of feel like At this point in time, they were trying to show that Wolf Spain went directly from New Mutants to being. Kind of thrown in weirdly with X-Factor. I felt like she was the youngest and most childlike on New Mutants when she first joined. And I feel like she never really had a childhood. Like I was saying, she went from New Mutants to X-Factor and then she was thrown into Excalibur. I don't think she had a time to really enjoy being a kid. And Elixir can be gold and cute. Why not want to sleep with him? <laughs>
1: Okay, if he's legal, I get it. The gold thing's pretty hot if he's legal. Kyle slash Yost years from January 2006 to March 2008.
0: You know, we covered these already on the X-Force episode pretty thoroughly. That was one of the longest segments. I think we said a lot about it. So what's next?
1: We have the Young X-Men Year, which took place from May 2008 to May 2009, featuring the title Young X-Men 1 to 12. Now, this is basically what we call New Mutants, where we are in 80s mutant mania. What did this title bring that other titles didn't bring? How was your reaction to this title it's a very blah name personally
0: this book added a scaly gray mutant magically linked to xavier's house mark guggenheim did this to us gray malkin is the most unacceptable mutant in the world i hate this era honestly i hate it i love the covers the covers are all gorgeous the art's lovely the writing is fine but like i do not like the story i just don't it's a great team and i don't like how they come together it is a waste of a year it's a dumb name for a book this is no one's shining moment.
2: It was kind of like a year-long one-shot. This story could have been told in an extra giant-sized issue or maybe like a four-part series. It also introduced another character. Her name is Cypher as well, but with a I instead of a Y. I will say, even though as boring as Gray Malkin is, he was just another addition at this time of an LGBT character who has a very tragic history. It's nice that, in this new generation of them adding new characters to try to stay with the times of how younger people come out a lot sooner these days, I like that's what Marvel was trying to do with introducing characters like Grey Malkin and Annalie and Bling.
1: The try-anything era, starting with the New Mutants by Wells from July 2009 to March 2011 which saw New Mutants 1 to 21. What did this reboot bring? The Zepp Well
0: year? Like this was nothing. Ileana recently was reintroduced to the X-Men and they just wanted to capitalize on it. I thought this was so boring. I thought this was 21 issues of gorgeous art and really really boring.
2: Once again I had nothing to add Magic, at this point in time, had been missing from X-Men comics for quite some time, and she recently came back, and this was 20 or so issues of, I guess, really them trying to get the original New Mutant characters back together, but it was not interesting at all. They kind of just got back together, and no story was with it. It was just, hey, we're back together, and Magic's alive. Yay. Yay.
1: So then we have still New Mutants, but this time by Abnet and Lanning from July two thousand eleven to December two thousand twelve, which saw New Mutants twenty five to fifty. Did these twenty six issues bring anything interesting, new, exciting compared to the previous issues, or was this still kind of like a flop? Also, this is missing twenty two to twenty four. It actually is. So they wound up using a handful of
0: issues of New Mutants to kind of tide over a crossover and gave those issues to Mike Carey to use on. Age of X. I like these years. I am, as a rule, a big Abnett and Lanning fan that their 20 year relationship as co writers ended so severely that they will never co write together ever again. I don't know what happened, but like, I loved these guys as a writing pair. Their annihilation work was gorgeous, and these years were fine. The crossover with Loki is the highlight. That's about it. Oh, right. This brought back X Man, and oh, this brought back stupid Blink.
2: I would agree with what Nico said. I like the direction that they started to go with New Mutants towards the end of this. They added Nate Gray, X-Man, and even though Nico doesn't like her, they added 616 Blink to the team. And I actually thought it was a good addition, adding the two of them. There was this kind of on-again, off-again romance, it seemed, that was happening between Nate and Danny. This world's Blink got to finally have a team... Or family that she could love and be a part of, and then the book ended very quickly.
1: Lastly, we have Generation Hope, which ran from January 2011 to May 2012, which showed the title Generation Hope 1 to 17. Unlike its namesake, I don't have much of it. For if his issues were good or not, I have a feeling that this is a part of a showcase for Hope Summers, who I'm personally not the biggest fan of. And you're probably saying, Jonah, you haven't even met her yet. What are you talking about? The name sounds a little too cheesy for me, and I'm all for a little bit of cheese. I don't know if I can get into the name and a character that I'm not really that into either. What are your two's experience with this? I'm a big Kieran Gillen fan. I'm not a big fan of this book. I don't even like dislike it, but I kind of
0: nothing to this book. It's at a fun time. I enjoy Schism. I love Wolverine and the X-Men. I don't care so much for the Extinction team. This book was fine, I
2: guess. I feel like in Marvel Comics at this time, hope was supposed to be something really important. And I feel like a lot of fans thought she was going to end up being something or someone more important. And then she ended up not really being important. Then she got her own book of Generation Hope where she was tasked of being with these five mutants. At this point in time, there hadn't been mutants born or powers activating because of a certain witchy story from years previous. And now there's five new mutants and Hope was going to be, I guess, showing them the ropes, but it kind of fell and was not that good. I think, honestly, the only really good parts of this book was the fact that Sebastian Shaw was in it. And yeah, it was interesting seeing a Sebastian Shaw who kind of didn't really know who he was at this point in time.
0: I think it's really interesting that Hope went from the five lights to the five and now she gets to hang out with Eggo Balls. <laughs> Lego, my Eggle Balls. I've loved this tour through The New Mutants. However, I feel like no conversation about The New Mutants would be complete without talking about Marvel's other weird attempt at talking to youths, right? They wanted to talk to us youths about what it was like to be alive in this bold new time. And they could think of nobody who could speak better to the youth of America and their diversity than a middle-aged Italian man. And they gave Joe Quesada... <laughs> A hard hitting book. Let me rephrase that. As editor in chief of Marvel, Joe Quesada saw it upon himself to put upon himself
1: a book about the tough times teens face today. So, what you're saying is he spun his chair around, sat down, and said, No, you're gonna teach me. <laughs> Sometimes people don't believe me about just how
0: exaggerated NYX was as a title. While I enjoy Kitten as a character, I think she is dynamic and interesting. I think it's hard to talk about NYX without talking about how unbelievably ridiculous it is that she has a pacifier in her mouth, like on the first cover, that's how they introduced Kitten Nixon into the world, with a pacifier in her mouth. And that wouldn't be enough right? I need to tap into something a little crazy. There have only ever properly been 13 issues of NYX and they took 6 years to come out. NYX number 1 through 5 came out November of 2003, January and February of 2004 July of 2004 and September of that same year. After that, X-23 was given to Chris Claremont who used her throughout X-Men 450 to X-Men 461 which ran December of 2004 to August of 2005, in that time, X-23 got her 1st miniseries. Ultimately, NYX would return a year later, in September and October of 2005, with issues 6 and 7 closing out the series. X-23 would go on to become a regular in the pages of New X-Men, from issues 20 to 46, starting in January of 2006 until the book's demise in March of 2008. She received another title, X-23 Target X, 1 through 6, from February July of 2007, before a one-shot in May 2010 restored her to the NYX team. NYX returned in No Way Home 1 through 6 from October 2008 to April 2009. If you want to be really generous and throw X23 number 1 in there, you could say there are 14 issues of NYX and they came out from November 2003 to April 2009 without that being the narrative the story was meant to follow. Didn't Nixon's power, by the way, Pacifier Girl, she can freeze time. When they introduce X-23 in the third issue, she's literally a whore i am so mad at this mistreatment of this character she had been introduced in x-men evolution the animated series to incredible success and phenomenal fan fervor so it only made sense to incorporate her into the proper marvel continuity but to make her a sex worker and then it in no way truly impacted her character for several years as they moved her to the kid book
2: yeah it was very unfortunate i feel like nyx had a really good plan of being good. And then besides that first cover with the pacifier, the art in the book was amazing. And it also brought back an X-Men fan favorite, uh, Dr. Cecilia Reyes. It had its moments of being good, but I feel like it just wasn't executed in the best way that the story could have been. It's such a
0: weird footnote in the annals of X-Men. It's this book that frankly could have been called Fallen Angels. Oh it just sits oddly almost perpendicular to X-Men just out like a sore thumb and it just it always deserved better I love Kitten and I love Tatiana I think these are excellent characters who were never really given a shot so it's disappointing Jonah do you feel like you've learned anything about the young generation of X-Men
1: and how they're handled throughout the years? It sounds like just like anything it takes a little bit to get off and start running and flying which happens you need to get your feet and you need to get your wings and then it takes off really well and it does super great and it's soaring high and then it feels like it takes a severe nosedive it never feels like it quite gets its footing back maybe there might be some peaks where it really rises above again for a little bit but it doesn't stay there i
2: think jonah's takeaway on everything that we've mentioned to him about the younger generation of x-men stories is pretty accurate um when it comes to the x-men titles with younger characters I love the fact that ever since Giant Size X-Men that all of the younger teams have been so full of diversity and trying to have representation for any and all kinds of readers. I feel like that part has been consistent and kind of spot on that they have done very well with the diversity, but I feel like any of the times that these students or teen books were written was also when there was much bigger things happening in the main X-Books and I feel like that more spotlight should have been given to the younger books instead of them appearing right when these big plots were happening with the main X-Men because I feel like the younger kids and generations were lost because more thought was being put into the main X-Books. Ultimately, it depends on where the focus is. For a
0: while, Uncanny is not as strong as New Mutants and New Mutants really owns, especially during those since Kevich years. Later on, when Claremont gets his bearings back, and uncanny he sort of drops the ball on New Mutants it really depends on how much is on the writers plate at the time and how far out of the box they're willing to go I've had an amazing time taking a look at some of my favorite stories of all time with you guys and until we
2: return to take a look at Excalibur Dylan where can everybody find you on the internet? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group called House of X or on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan that is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N Jonah where can everybody find you? Enrolling
1: in Xavier's Institute watching it become Jean Grey's Institute, and then finally destroying the building myself, as it should have been this entire time. Or you can find me not being that dramatic on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this
0: amazing network making shows like HTML with Kevo or all the feeds of this show here on X's for Podcast, whether it's 70s X-Men Explosion in our archives, the continuing 80s mutant mania, or our coverage of Dawn of X in We Are Krakoa. We're bringing you all the X-Men we can. So please feel free to hit like and subscribe to follow along. Don't forget to check me out on Nico Action on Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Or my super cool superhero comic over at KidRiotComics.com. And until next time, guys, we'll see ya. Sayonara. See ya.